EscapingTheCave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Thank you, comrade. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Remember, bitch, you clicked on my face. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone. You gotta give your lawyer something to work with. You're supposed to be on the tape like, this is the best 36-year-old pussy I've ever had in my life. And then your lawyer gonna be like, your honor, clearly my client thought that this woman was 36, as he mentioned some 16 times in the tape. They gonna know you lying though, you know what I mean? Everybody knows no such thing as good 36-year-old pussy. Uh, Dave Chappelle, how I love thee. How we need thee at this point. Hi there, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, Tonsil X-Pod, CRISPRmedia.net uses a uh, network. You can also get me over at escapingthecave.com as my comradely electric robot voice told you at the beginning of the show. Hi there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know how this is going to go today. It's been a while, about 12 days. I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> been an interesting 12 days. Not a planned hiatus, but a hiatus, I guess. Uh, nonetheless, I'm having trouble reaching things here today. I've rearranged my room. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, Dave Chappelle in the news a lot over the last couple of weeks. I finally uh, went and watched that special, and it was like I dipped my toes in magic waters. Old school comedy, man. This guy, I swear to God. I, I mean, I used to love stand-up passionately. I've talked about this before. I, you know, kind of <laughs> injected myself, uninvited, I guess, into the uh, Chicago comedy scene when I was actually kind of considering trying to do stand-up before I realized I was more angry than funny. Once upon a time, back, uh, I guess, the days of like Bill Hicks, George Carlin, these truth-tellers, and they could get away with it. It's the old Oscar Wilde quote, if you're going to tell people the truth, make them laugh or else they're going to kill you. It's essential to have at least an element of that in society. Somebody that could go on stage and tell the truth. And that's exactly what I thought of when I watched this Chappelle bit. I've been a fan of his since Chappelle's show. That, that show made me incredibly uncomfortable. And that's why I loved it. And he's still able to do that clearly to a lot of people today. Even after, what, 16, 17 years that he's been off the air with that program. And that special, and a couple of the other ones that I've seen, it reminds me, I, it's sad, but I, I kept thinking to myself, this guy is the contemporary George Carlin, Dave Chappelle. I don't know what to think of that, because <laughs> Chappelle? Okay. But it, I, as I sat down and thought about it a little bit, I realized it's because everything else sounds like, almost like religious comedy, doctrinal comedy, doctrinaire comedy being performed down at our transgendered lady of the perpetual victim. That's what comedy clubs and comedy shows feel like now. It feels like religious comedy, and religious comedy is terrible. Horrific. I mean, something has gone terribly wrong when that material stands out like that. Something's gone very wrong both in the world of comedy and in the, in, in the comedy ecosystem in and of itself. I've tried not to talk too much about my time in Chicago because I like those people. I like the people that I was hanging around with. I worked at uh, one of the improv clubs there. 
uh, interned actually just basically to get access to uh, shows. I would get into the shows for free and I would watch really talented, funny people do improv and also had access to the open mic uh, while I was there. Figured out how it worked. I would go in and I would watch people. I got nothing to say about improv, man. These improvisers in Chicago are some of the most brilliant people I've ever seen. People you've never heard of. They would astound you. But the stand-up comedy scene, in the couple of years that I was there, on and off, I spent the first maybe about six months really immersed in it, going multiple times, several times a week sometimes, to watch different people perform stand-up comedy. And it was really uncomfortable for me because... It was a closed ecosystem. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. I think that it was something that reminded me of religious comedy. A very specific boundary that you're comfortable speaking within. Right? Don't get the wrong impression here. I'm not saying the, that these folks were not funny. They were funny people. But their content and their point of view was one of the most homogenous groups I have ever ever seen. That's where it reminded me of religion. That's where it reminded me of going down to the church and getting the scripture. There were a few people, I I have to say, that tried to step outside of that, but they stuck out like a sore thumb, man. I wouldn't be able to quantify it, but I would dare say probably 80%, maybe 90% of these uh, up-and-coming comedians, these hopeful comedians in the Chicago stand-up comedy scene, maybe 10 or 20% were willing to step out of the acceptable, safe boundaries of content and point of view. There was always a gay comedian. Oh my God, the world does not need another gay fucking comedian. The world does not need another fat fucking comedian saying how his life sucks because he's fat or how life sucks because he's gay. How many do we need for fuck's sakes? Saying the same thing. They're 90% of them are saying the same exact thing. I get it. What else you got? You got anything else? I, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God. <laughs> this is when I was in the liberal camp. I'm watching. I'm sitting in. I got, I got my beer in front of me at the table in the crowd. And I'm sitting here. Oh, really? Another one? Oh, look. A lesbian. Yay. Gosh, what you got? You going to say the same thing the chick before you said? Because she was a lesbian too, and all she did was complain about how her life sucked, how being a lesbian was this, that. Ay, God. Oh, nice uniform you got on up there. Boy, you're edgy. You're standing out to me just like the 15 people before you did. There was no nonconformity of thought. Nonconformity. That's going to be the theme of this program today. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just sitting down to get a show in today, to be honest with you. But conformity is going to play a huge part of it because there were very, very few nonconformists in that Chicago comedy scene. And you can go look around right now. Go look around. The reason Dave Chappelle stands out so much is because he has bucked conformity. He has taken a nonconformist attitude. He has decided to do his own thing from his own unique point of view that he has allowed himself to explore. And I think that's the key because most people don't allow themselves to explore anything out of the acceptable conformist boundaries of thought. And I noticed this five fucking years ago in Chicago. Very few people were, were willing to do that. And it's because, I think, largely in part, I didn't do a survey. I wouldn't be able to you know, sit here and claim to be able to read everybody's mind. But I think from actually trying to figure out how to do stand-up 
and feeling what it was like to get up in front of, because when you're doing stand-up, when you first start doing stand-up, you're not going in front of a neutral crowd. You're going on stage in front of other comics, other comedians, other would-be comedians at these open mics. That is your barometer for funny. And if you go outside the acceptable boundaries of a point of view, you could be hilarious. You could be the funniest man in the world. And if they disagree with your point of view, or if you're blaspheming against acceptability, they will not give you the feedback required to gain confidence in your material. Now, did I experience this? Yes, I did. Absolutely did. Part of that was because I wasn't funny. And I didn't give myself an opportunity to suck. I bailed on that quickly. But the other part of it was, I was doing a show. I was doing this class with a stand-up front of mine. He was putting the, uh, the uh, sh- uh, class on through this improv club. And I took it a couple of times. That was part of the trade-off I got for doing the uh, internship. And I got to take this class for free. And there were other people in there, these uh, comedians who had come to Chicago to pursue their career, and they were taking the class from this other, this other dude, same as I was. And I got on stage, and I was trying to do some, I was trying to sift through some of the stuff I do on this program and have written about, and I was trying to sift it through a comedic filter, right? And I went on stage one day, and I was talking about uh, thoughts and prayers, and I went off on a riff. I went off sort of on a tangent that I didn't expect to go to. And I said something. And I saw this other guy who was in the audience. He was a, a sort of a semi-established improv dude in Chicago. And he's sitting there and I said this. I got to my quote-unquote punchline, which really wasn't. But I tried. And I got to it and I saw him cringe. And I was just like, oh, yeah. Uh-uh. This isn't going to work here. I'm not going to be able to actually apply this here. Because I am so far out of the comedic mainstream, outside of the realms of acceptable topicality, that to get in front of these folks, to get in front of these other comedians, this cognitively and intellectually, ideologically homogenous, for the most part, group of comedians in Chicago, there was no way that I was going to be able to develop. I was not going to get a clear reading of my stuff or my stage presence, or my (laughs) likability, which I lack. (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) Can you imagine me? I lack likability as a comedian. (laughs) I lack likability as a human being. But there was no way I was going to be able to develop that and do the material that I wanted to do. Now, one of the courses forward was just to do bland material. Learn the craft, learn stagecraft. Learn likability, learn how to read a crowd, how to work a crowd, doing bland fucking material, right? And that was an option. is one, one that I looked at and one that I tried to do, but I just didn't have it in me. I didn't have a passion for that. I didn't have a passion to go take what I consider to be vanilla, substandard stuff. And that's what it would have been. Lobotomized material just to put it on stage in front of friendly eyes. I couldn't do that. But I think that's part of it. I, I think that th- there's always been this question. And it's been around for a really, really long time. Why are there no really, really funny and huge conservative comedians? Oh, what about Larry the Cable Guy? Whatever. He's a redneck. So is Jeff Foxworthy. There aren't very many conservatives who are really good and really funny. 
there are a few people who have been established, like maybe Dennis Miller, right? He was a, he was a liberal guy. He was established on Saturday Night Live. He had a career before he decided to diverge off into conservatism. He still has a career. But how many people do you see coming forth, getting on stage, having a Netflix special, having an HBO special with a conservative point of view? Or just one that's not liberal. One like Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle can pull this off because he's Dave Chappelle. Most people can't. And I think, I've had this conversation with a couple different people. And we used to say, this is back when I was a liberal. I used to say, well, it's being conservative isn't funny. It's not funny oppressing people. That was my point of view then. And I'm sure that there are a few of you out there listening, my woke flake friends, if you're still listening to this podcast, who would say the same thing. It's not funny to be mean to people. I don't buy that for a second. I don't think that conservative comedians necessarily have to be mean to people except liberals. The same way liberals are mean to conservatives. Go listen to it, man. That's the thing that pissed a lot of people off about Dave Chappelle. He wasn't attacking conservatism. He spent most of his special, a lot of that special, not all of it, The guy's still a liberal, but he spent a lot of time attacking the woke flake cult. That's what conservative comedy would sound like. And you're seeing what's happening. You're seeing what's happening with the liberal. They're they're shouting it down. And I think that subconsciously, and I don't think anybody ever made like a conscious decision to do this in the Chicago scene. I don't think most of these guys ever put a second thought into it because they're surrounded by this closed ideological and philosophical ecosystem. So they never thought about having to stifle out-of-the-ordinary ideological content because it never showed up. The people who would do that kind of material stifled themselves because they were not among friendly people in that sense. Nobody said, oh my God, you suck, you can't be here. Nobody tried you know, consciously and purposely to shun anybody for conservative viewpoints. Nobody did that there. They didn't have to. I mean, you go out to the bar at this uh, comedy club, and I would hang around uncomfortably for a lot of people. They didn't know who I was. There's a good story behind that. I've been told this before. Until they got, they got to know me a little bit anyway. But you would sit there. I would sit there, and I would sit at my table with my drink observing these comedians, these comics, these funny people in Chicago, one of the you know premier markets to develop yourself as a comedic talent in the country. And I would listen to them talk. I wanted to figure out what it was that made, that drove them. I wanted to figure out what made a comedian a comedian outside of being funny. And one of the primary things that I noticed was that when they were sitting around the table, they were sitting at the bar, when nobody was looking, nobody was watching, they were not performing. They were still performing to each other. And the ideology came up more, I think, than they realized. And you could hear it. Now, if you're a young, fresh comedian who's maybe got some controversial material, some out-of-the-box material, relatively speaking, you're going to hear that. And you're going to know when you go back on that stage in there in front of these comedians as you do your open mic training, you're going to know that these people don't like you. They don't like the material. They disagree with the material. And comedy is incredibly subjective. As a performance goes, it's the most subjective art that I can think of right off the top of my head. Because if you don't like the person, if you don't like the content, if you disagree with the content, you will not find it funny. It has nothing to do with the skill or the uh, joke-making ability of the guy on stage. If you have found that person distasteful, 
tasteful, they can still be hilarious, and you're not going to laugh at a goddamn thing. You have got to agree with the material in order to be open to laughter. Can you think of anybody, think of a comedian you absolutely cannot stand, and how often do you agree with what they're saying? And how many marginal comedians actually have a career because they pander to the crowd? They give the crowd acceptable, reinforcing material. It's a difficult thing for somebody to break into. And I think that in particular is why you don't see too many conservative comedians. You don't see too many comedians who are willing to do what Dave Chappelle did. And I think that's why. Because they never develop. They get smothered in the comedic crib. They can't develop an authentic feel for, their, for themselves, for their voice, for their stagecraft, for their delivery, because they've always got this thing in the back of their head that the audience, the people who they are talking to, these other comedians, this homogenous group of ideologues, basically, sitting in the audience, do not like what they're saying. I think that's it. And I think when you were a young comedian, I wasn't young, but I was <laughs> inexperienced, let's put it that way. You're unsure of yourself and, you know, suffering that sort of self-doubt, that crippling self-doubt that will keep you from getting on stage if you're not careful, if you're not really able to fight through that, if you don't have that sense of belief in yourself and in your material and the support coming from the crowd as well. You've got to have that. You've got to have a support group that's willing to encourage you while you suck. And if you don't have that or you have a subconscious sort of feeling that you don't, maybe it's a projected thought. I mean, there's nobody in the audience. Really, that's, I, I swear to God, they, I don't think they're sitting there saying, I need to suppress this guy. But they disagree with the content. The person on stage senses that. Some sort of rejection. Maybe they see somebody in the audience twinge. And yeah, I think that's why a lot of these guys, a lot of these would-be comedians, don't make it. I applaud what Dave Chappelle is doing. He's able to do this because he's Dave Chappelle. That's fine. You know what? He's doing it. And am I not so humble opinion? <laughs> we need more of that. We need more people to stand the fuck up and speak some truth. There was a lot of truth in there. A lot of truth in that special. It was offensive. Yeah, I know, Smallflake. I know. You got your feelings hurt. Oh, my God. Were you twiggered? Sorry. That was some old school stuff. That was some George Carlin inspired stuff. There was a lot of stuff, I think, from Bill Hicks in there. I heard a lot of Hicksian material in there. I did. And it's telling that most of the people, he's not funny anymore. I don't think he's funny. Well, that's ironic. I found him fucking hilarious. And a lot of other people found him fucking hilarious. So is it that he's not funny or you don't like his point of view? You'd like to see him canceled because you disagree, not, not because he's not funny, because you disagree with his perspective. It has nothing to do with his comedic talent. He's one of the funniest motherfuckers in the world. He has been forever. Keep that in mind when you hear and you watch people uh, talking about comedy and, and talking about comedians and talking about performers in general. How often their supposed opinion, your opinion, is determined and based upon how they feel about that performer's ideology or their political religion. And I think you could probably apply that general idea in uh, more than one place. There's nothing left for me to hide. I lost my ignorance, security, and pride. I'm all-
Listening to the Escaping the Cave podcast, ChristopherMedia.net, also over at uh, EscapingTheCave.com. That's my glorious and lovely website. Please swing on over and check it out, won't you? Nine Inch Nails. Oh, one of the reasons that I'm certain that the 1990s, it's up for debate, kind of. I had the best music. I want so much to believe that song's going to make a lot of sense here in a couple of minutes. Anyway. All right. What else we got here? I don't really have a solid roadmap for this show. I kind of do, but uh, I'm going to take a break from the propaganda book uh, here for just this episode. Basically to get back on the horse. But there are a few things that I wanted to get into that sort of tie into the propaganda theme and the social media disease theme that uh, all of this is sort of interconnected to. And uh, we were talking about narratives, Matt and I. He's been reading a book on 4chan, 8chan. And he's convinced that he has a pretty good idea where a lot of these conspiracies are coming from and how these are basically trolls over here at 4chan and 8chan. Just basically putting out bullshit. Fake information, just complete fiction. And how people are snatching it up. He was talking about QAnon. I don't know a lot about QAnon, so I went and Googled him when he started talking about these guys. And I realized that these QAnon people, when they're talking about how these elites basically are organized and are preying on young children, sexually molesting young children. I realized that I had heard that before. And that was from my old conspiracy theory uh, radio host, a guy I worked with in Denver back in 2006. That was one of the big things that he was a part of. He really believed that. He was investigating it. He was talking about it on his show all the time, how these elites are part of a big pedophile ring, an organized pedophile ring. They have ceremonies where they go and they, like, pray to Satan. Literally, I think he said this. They, they would go and pray to Satan and then have sex with children. This is stuff that he was talking about in 2006. And when I went and researched this stuff... Which basically means a, a Wikipedia search, because I wasn't going to get too involved in that. I realized that I'd heard this stuff before. This stuff isn't original. The stuff from, coming from QAnon. The, whoever put this stuff together, whoever sort of injected this into the 4chan, 8chan ecosystem, it just basically lifted it from shit that had been out there in the conspiracy realm for, for years. And people found it. And they believed it, and they started perpetuating it. Same thing with Pizzagate. It's the same damn idea. And all this stuff started over at 4chan or over at 8chan as basically a trolling exercise to get people riled up and see if they could sell people on bullshit. And by God, they did. And whole, lo and behold, according, according to Matt, they didn't really want this stuff to go mainstream. They were just fucking around, but people took it mainstream, and all of a sudden it's a thing, and you got people holding cue signs up at Donald Trump rallies. And what this boils down to is some stuff that I have been talking about quite a bit, and that's wanting to believe something. Can I believe this? Do I choose? Do I choose to allow myself to believe this? Because I want to believe this. Can I believe this? I think I shall. 
wanting to believe the narrative. And this is the allure of disinformation and propaganda. I honestly believe it. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I'm sorry. I hate to be repetitive, but I honestly thought that eventually I would see how these evil propagandists were victimizing the people at some point, at least a little bit. At least a little bit. That is not the case. They're exploiting it, sure. But this isn't a victim-perpetrator scenario here. This is more of a Walter White junkie relationship. More than it is a matter of exploiting the poor, unsuspecting and innocent public. You're not unsuspecting. You're not innocent here either. You want this stuff. You need this stuff. I'll be outlining more. Even more than I already have, I'll be outlining how. I will be laying the case. I will be putting the case forth to you, the listening public. The loyal Tonzillophile will be getting a dissertation on why I believe this is true. And not just me. Yeah, just me. Oh, no. And I think you're going to be able to see if you have any kind of clear vision, any ability to clearly see anything outside of yourself. But more importantly, if you allow yourself to be clearly introspective, good fucking luck with that. But if you do, if you're one of the few people who can even attempt that, you're going to be able to see how this is true. We are not blameless. We are not poor little innocent victims being brutalized by the propagandists. That is not the case, my friends. It is not the case. In no way, in no shape, in no fashion. Sure, they're exploiting it, but you want to be exploited. You do. Is Walter White really the problem, or is it the junkie that gets hooked on his product? Who's to blame here? Maybe a little bit of both, huh? Maybe. It could be. I'll leave that to you. But Matt put it this way. If you want the story, you'll watch the movie. And that is a really good way to put this. I would actually say if you demand the story, you'll watch it. And when I realized that, I had to sort of apply this to myself. I tend to do this now and then. More on that coming. But do we really want this stuff? Do we need it? Do we demand it? Do we demand to have our preferential worldview, our schema? Do we demand to have that reinforced? And will we go find it wherever, wherever it's provided? And if we do, like Walter White, is it possible, do you think, To monetize that. Do you think it's possible not only to exploit it politically and for power purposes, but to monetize it and laugh all the way to the bank? Or in Walter White's realm, when you go bury your barrel in the desert? A lot of what's happened, a lot of what I've been talking about and will continue to be talking about falls right there. We want it. And in some ways, we can't do without it. And things are getting worse now with the advent of this technology that we are wholly and 1,000% unprepared for with this deluge of data, disconnected data, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, spin, lies, fictions. We are deluged with information that we can possibly cut through. So we default to the narrative. We default to the myth. Whatever it is we choose to cling on to to explain this incredibly, ridiculously confusing world made even more so by this deluge and choking on data. 
this isn't going to get any better. This is not going to get any better at all. It's just going to get worse the more the more people understand how to manipulate human nature. More on human nature coming in this episode. Stay the fuck tuned for that. But the more people figure out how to exploit it, and the more people, the more people deny that it exists, human nature, this sort of backdoor, this Trojan horse access to your mind, the more people reject that it's even there. It's not there. You can't see me. The more people do that, and the more people understand how to exploit that, it's only going to get worse. This is the tip of the fucking iceberg. There's no doubt about that. I'm sorry. If you want your, your sausage party, no, go, 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 go elsewhere. There's a really good part of this book that I found this week. I've been reading a lot of it, trying to pull it all together, reading, reading some of it for the second, third, and fourth times. But he makes a very good point. He, he was dealing with this sort of, people were accusing him of being a nihilist, even back then. And he says one of the most important things you can do at a time of crisis is honesty. You don't bullshit people when you're in a time of crisis. You don't lie to them. You have to point out weaknesses. You have to point out holes in the wall back in the medieval times. Hey, that one over there, there's a hole in the wall. The Huns are coming. You might want to patch it up. And the equivalent of this today, when you start talking to people about the, 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 the propaganda and, and, and human nature, these, these blank slatists that deny it even fucking exists, basically that's the equivalent of saying, I can't see it. I'm going to cover my eyes and not look at the hole in the wall. And then it's not there and the Huns won't come. Fuck you. That is what we're dealing with. And so I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sit here. I'm not going to sit here and give you false hope. I'm not going to do that. And don't trust anybody who does. I don't care if you're listening to me or not. You can shut me the fuck off right now. Go ahead. Never listen to another word I say. But when you leave, don't go trusting people who just blow that smoke up your butthole. They're lying to you. They're exploiting you. They're exploiting that need for hope. They're exploiting that need and that desire for you to take your head and shove it in the sand because you do not want to look at the situation we are in. And if you do, then it's not their fault, right? It's not their fault for exploiting that. It's yours for letting them. It's yours for not having any sort of willing tether to reality. <sighs> Look, I miss happy endings, man. I, I keep looking and looking. I have done this. I've done this in the last couple of weeks. I've done it in the last couple of months. In the last year, two years, I've been doing this repeatedly. Like, okay. Oh, am I being just cynical? Am I just being a nihilist? Am I being a fatal? Okay, let me, okay, I'm going to try to count. I'm going to try to see the bright side. It'll work for an hour. Okay, well, maybe the technology will develop. Maybe the technology will evolve. Maybe we'll just learn how to use all this stuff and we'll just be thinking kumbaya by 2030. Now, it always comes back to the same thing. It always comes back to the same thing. I'm always reminded we're on the fucking Titanic. But the problem is, that doesn't work, does it? When I say that, it doesn't work on you. 
It doesn't work on most people. Maybe it works on you if you're still listening, but most people, no. They hear this stuff. Oh, my God, I don't want to hear that. I want the easy thing. I want the thing that's going to make me feel good. I want the, I want the thing that's going to give me hope and just let me do my life and make sure oh, everything's going to be okay. It's the psychology of a kid. It's the psychology of children. You've got to tell them that the fairy tale has a happy ending, that the big bad wolf isn't going to come and eat them. The public at large, they're not that much different than children in that regard because they will stick their fingers in their ears and they'll, I don't want to hear that. Tell me I am wrong. If you want to tell people the truth, you better make them laugh or else they're going to kill. It's the same idea. You've got to give the children hope. It's like Ward Cleaver. The chemotherapy is always going to cure Ward. He's always going to come home. Home to June. June, by the way, not really fucking Eddie Haskell. Oh, no, just tutoring him three days a week. (laughs) Wally, yeah. He can quit the smack whenever he wants. Yeah, the, the cuts on the beeve's arm. That was from walking through the briar patch, huh? You got to give people hope. You got to give them that. You got to give it's it and what if there isn't any What if there isn't any beyond telling the people to hold up a fucking mirror in front of their face and look at themselves. Look at what they're doing, look at how they behave, look at what they seek out. If that's the only cure and they refuse to look, what do you got? What do you got? You've got a diluted species of lemmings barreling toward a cliff. We are on the Titanic. The difference is the Titanic hit that iceberg in the middle of the night. It's broad daylight in this metaphor. We've got 20-mile visibility. 20 fucking miles. It's it's as clear as day where this is headed. Clear as day. We see the iceberg. We see it every fucking day. We saw it throughout throughout the 2016 election. We're going to see it next year the same way. Even worse, because it's had four years to evolve. And we're going to stand on the deck of the Titanic, looking at this iceberg, steaming straight forward while we sit there and blame the people on the other side of the fucking boat. And while they blame us. The captain's got to come down and moderate the fucking mob on the deck. He can't steer the ship away from the iceberg. I don't know who the captain is. This metaphor just sort of running with it, but that's that's exactly what's going to happen. We're going to sit here and argue and blame and point fingers and throw snowballs at each other while that iceberg in front of us gets closer, 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 closer until we hit it. And what people don't understand, what people don't realize in their fanatical idealism and puritanism is that it's going to plunge each and every one of us into the North Atlantic Ocean. There are no lifeboats big enough to get us to shore. The Carpathia isn't coming in this case. The Carpathia is on the other side of the Atlantic. It can't get there. And who's to say it would? Who's to say it would come and rescue this crop of puritanical fanatics who drove themselves into an iceberg? Maybe the people on the Carpathia, maybe the captain of the Carpathia, I forget his name at this point, got a big medal, professional medal honor or something like that for saving all those people. He wouldn't even, like, you know what, fuck that. I want to deal with these people. Hell them. Let them sink. I refuse to lie to you. I refuse to lie to you to make you feel good. I refuse to lie to you to just keep you listening. I'm not getting any fucking money for this anyway. Maybe, I guess if I were selling advertising, I would have to concoct some fiction. Some fiction of Sausage Party Hope. 
to get my, you know, quarter of a cent for each download or whatever the hell it is. I'm not doing that, thank God. So therefore, I don't have to lie to you. This show is the same every single time, regardless of whether you download it or don't. And it's going to stay that way. I am not going to lie to you. I am not going to inseminate you with false hope. If I see it, I'll sure as hell tell you. In fact, I found some people, actually, this week, I'll get to this in a little bit. I found some people this week who have found, I think, Pollyannic hope. These guys are, are technophiles. Some people like to consider me a technophobe. I'm not. But these guys, they love technology. They absolutely adore it. Some of these folks worked for Facebook. They saw what it was doing, and they decided that they had to start raising alarms. This is actually kind of encouraging. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, this media multiplex. I think YouTube's getting in on this as well. They're, they're starting to tinker around with getting rid of the like button. I mean, that's the entire foundation of Facebook and especially Instagram. The dopamine hit, the dopamine addiction, how this, the, these platforms grab you to exploit your need for social validation. I don't have that. Yes, you do. Everybody's got it. Shh. I don't need to be socially validated. Why are you here? Go away. And over the past few years, I have done a few podcasts uh, on dopamine addiction, using myself primarily as an example, including uh, Cyberspace Monkeys and the Demon podcasts from last year. Uh, the Demon was actually, I, I did that back in 2014, but I reposted it last year. It's in the uh, episode list if you want to go listen to it. Uh, you can also check out the Convulsive Twitch episode that I did a couple of months back. That one's new. That's about dopamine addiction and some other things. I've, I've kind of concluded that the, this Convulsive Twitch that I keep referring to, this conditioned response, this conditioned reflex that I have dubbed the Convulsive Twitch, I think it's tied to dopamine. I think it's tied associatively to getting a dopamine hit from some sort of about a decade's worth of being socially validated via Facebook by my friends, my echo chamber, my tribe. I think that's a lot of what this is. I'm trying to get a handle on it. I, I haven't been able to quite do it yet. I'm getting better about it. But of course, Facebook. Now, when they're talking about tinkering with the like system, they're saying, well, it's because we're concerned about our users' well-being. Their sense of well-being. That's complete and utter horseshit. And somewhere inside a Zuckerbeast cave, I think that based on a lot of the things that I've seen from different people, including these podcasts that I was talking about, they're starting to realize, I think, an impending public relations nightmare that is going to come when the public realizes they've been knowingly pushing cyber meth on an unsuspecting public. That is going to be catastrophic. They understand the addictive nature of social media. They understand how addictive dopamine really is. To have a conditioned reflex tied to dopamine, which is the foundation, the utter foundation of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all of these social media sites that depend, oh, especially Twitter, yeah, that depend on some kind of social validation, what are the primary human needs to be socially validated? Did you, did you know that a few hundred years ago, back when we had these smaller bands, these smaller communities, you know, the, the, you grew up and you were raised with the same people. Back then, the capital punishment, 
at least outside of capital punishment. The second worst thing you could do to somebody, other than kill them, stone them, was to ostracize them. This is also tied to solitary confinement in prison. You need to feel part of something. You need to feel validated. You need to be part of a group. We are social critters, right? And that social validation thing in the virtual world is tied to being praised with likes. Do you really think they're dumb? Do you really think that they don't understand this? They have algorithms. They know how to trigger you. They know how to get you to click on things. They know how to gauge based on your likes and how you engage in other things. They know exactly how to craft what it is you'll click on if they put it in your newsfeed. The algorithm. They've been fucking with your head for years. This algorithm is psychological manipulation. They know all of this stuff. They understand this. They are not stupid. This is Facebook. This is Google for fuck's sakes. They have got more information and more data on you than they know what to do with. They've been gathering it for a decade and longer with Google. They know exactly what they're doing. You can't believe they're stupid, right? You can't. Do you really think that they are oblivious, just ignorant to the addictive nature of their ad and click-based platforms? Honestly, again, I'll go back to Walter White. It's like Walter claiming he thought his product was a nasal decongestant. What? I didn't know it was addictive. Yeah, sure you didn't. It's just a pretty blue. I thought they liked the blue. You have got to be cynical here. You have to be cynical. It's going to serve you well in a case like this. It's already starting to come out. People are leaving Facebook. They're leaving Google. They're leaving these tech companies. And they're talking about how these things were crafted to be addictive. How the pretty little colors use the same psychological principles as slot machines and casinos. To jack with your head. To drag you in. This is going to come out at some point. I think, I think it's going to come out. I think it's going to be exposed, hopefully, to the fullest degree that it happened. And I pray to God. I pray to God there's a backlash. But I'm not optimistic. Because the same thing happened with cigarettes. The same thing happened with Philip Morris and tobacco companies. People understood they're putting this addictive shit in there. It doesn't matter. The addiction's taken hold. You don't care how it got there. You just need to feed it. I pray to God I'm wrong on that. I pray to God that there is some huge, massive backlash to this. I really do. Now, regardless of the cynicism and all that, this is a big deal. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, tinkering with the like system. They're talking about getting rid of it. I've heard rumors and seen rumblings about Twitter thinking about getting rid of their follower list, their status number. That is a big deal. But social media addiction... They start messing with this. You gotta, you've got to remember, it is a dopamine addiction. And a dopamine addiction is a drug addiction. Even if your own body produces it, it doesn't matter. It's a drug addiction. It's a powerful one. It's a very real thing. And one that many, I dare say most, have no idea exists. Let alone that they suffer from it. I've talked about this. Struggled with it for five years since I, since I became aware of it. I struggled with it for longer than that. I didn't even know what the hell it was. I didn't even know it was there. But five years since becoming aware of it, and I still haven't kicked it. Working on it, but I haven't. In fact, this likely goes back for me, personally. Probably goes back about 23 years. This is a bigger problem. This is a bigger thing than just 
social media. But social media has learned how to exploit it. Again, you should go listen to the Demon Podcast if you want the entire story on this. Uh, But performers, in particular, are well aware of a dopamine rush. Even if they don't know what it is, they get on stage. I've heard comedians talk about this. I've heard all sorts of people talk about it. Stage performers, actors, all of them. They get on stage and they get a reaction. They get validation from the audience. That's the dopamine becomes addicting. You cannot do without it. The problem is, is that the tolerance level rises. You need more. You need more and more and more. You always need more. And some performers, there was talk about Robin Williams. That's how what inspired the Demon Podcast was Robin Williams' suicide in 2014. Some performers, not saying Robin Williams did, did this exclusively because of this, but some performers do kill themselves when they can no longer satisfy it. That is the demon. This is the realm that many are in on social media, and I, I, I warn you, if they start messing around with this like button and the social validation addiction they've created, don't underestimate how powerful this is. And after all the propaganda stuff that I've done, I strongly suspect that dopamine is tied to the visceral response that people get from propaganda. The illusion of performative action. Therefore, the uh, for-profit outrage, agitation, propaganda, industrial complex, among some other things. And this may be why Typhoid Mark and Typhoid Jack are starting to talk about covering their asses under the guise of our users' well-being. Bullshit. And giving the unsuspecting social media world, you give them an, even a controlled dose of metaphorical chantix, cutting off the dopamine supply, cutting off the dopamine trigger, it's going to have real psychological effects on more than just a couple of people. Depression is one of those. Another being an intense urge to find other avenues to replace what's been lost. You're going to go looking for the drug somewhere. You're going to find it somewhere. A drunken sense of egocentric meaning and self-importance. Oh, joy. Where could that lead? And yeah, it's not just uh, limited to uh, social media either. I'll be uh, transitioning to that. Not right away. I've got a lot more on this propaganda stuff coming after this episode. Now, you can go ahead and imagine me sitting here in my chair, my desk, talking to you, ranting into this here microphone, wearing a tinfoil hat. You can go right ahead and do that. That is your right as an American or as an Irishman. See you, Irish folks. Right there. That's your right to do that. But if these social media companies legitimately begin down this path, you might just be singing the uh, praises of Todd Stradamus. I'd like a song. I'd like a ballad, actually. The Ballad of Todd Stradamus may be sung by you, the loyal Tonzillophile listener, soon enough. It's happened before. <laughs> When I talk to God, I know he understands. He said, stick by me, I'll be your guiding hand. Don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give the answer that you want me to. Listening to Escaping the Cave podcast, ChristopherMedia.net, also EscapingTheCave.com. I'm Todd. Hi. Well, I've been uh, thumbing through Steven Pinker's old book, The Blank Slate. I think this came out right around, what, 2008? Something down that line. I haven't been doing too much. 
I don't want to get knocked off track. And I, every time I open this book, I, I desperately just want to like dive into it. And I can't do that. I've got uh, too much other stuff that I'm uh, working on at this point. And I don't want to get too distracted with it. But one of the things that I did see in this book was a description of what he calls utopian and tragic visions. I'm not sure if that's his original idea, if he's named those things and sort of alluded on them or not. I don't know if they're a Pinker original, but the utopian vision, how he describes it, the sort of the Star Trek future of humanity, how we are the preeminent species in all the universe, destined for great things, destined to become God. That's the utopian vision. That was what I was railing against. Maybe last month when I had ranted against uh, about humanism. And this is one of those things that, uh, to use... Jacques Ellul's phraseology has entered the realm of the sacred. The realm of the sacred doesn't matter if it's true. It's a belief. It's a religion. And it can't be challenged. This notion of the utopian future of humanity. That's what I sort of conflated with this idea of humanism. Still do. The flip side of that is what he called the tragic vision that human beings are flawed and we have got to work on ourselves, that we are completely defective in so many ways and that if we are not careful, we will tear ourselves and everything else to shreds. It's the idea that humanity is closer to cancer than God. Clearly, I fall on the side of the tragic vision, at least right now. I think we could potentially, in a perfect world, achieve the utopian vision, but we've got to evolve first, significantly. And I've said multiple times on this show that the next spurt of evolution is not going to be another thumb. I'm going to be a third eyeball on our forehead. No, it's going to be self-awareness, understanding who and what we really are, and working on that. Sort of a collective species-wide therapy course. Self-fucking-improvement, tethering ourselves to reality. Rather than letting Heights Elephant run rampage wild through the woods, crushing all the little furry woodland creatures in the process. Human evolution has not ended. Physically, perhaps. But as far as knowing who and what we are, self-awareness, we're not even close. We are barely out of the jungle. We are out of the jungle with new toys. And a clever language and the ability to rationalize and justify anything we want because we're clever. There's a big difference between smart and clever, kids. Big, huge difference between smart and clever. We're clever. We're not that smart. But we think we're smart. When stupid people think they're smart, they do stupid things. And collectively, collectively, we're dumb as a box of rocks. We can't see our own nose on our face, metaphorically speaking. And in this way, I diverge from Jacques Ellul. There are a few places where I honestly don't agree with him. Not very many. I think a lot of what he says makes sense, but I diverge from Jacques Ellul in this regard significantly, believe it or not. He states openly in this book, Propaganda, that I've been focusing on, uh, that at least at the time he wrote it, I don't know where he was when he died, but he still believed in the preeminence of mankind. His words, the preeminence of mankind, the, the ultimate superiority of the human species, he believed in it. He believed in human beings. 
And he wrote this despite authoring a book that turned out to be a treatise supporting what I understand to be Pinker's tragic vision of man. Pointing out the inherent and obvious flaws, manipulatable flaws in human beings. The hole in the psychic firewall, allowing Trojan horses to run free to spread their viruses inside of the human mind's computer. If you like that metaphor, a lot of people do. It ain't. But it's a good one. Is this sausage party hope on the part of Mr. Alul, or was this an effort to keep his readers from nihilism? Could be. Gotta offer kids hope, right? Gotta offer kids something. Gotta tell them that everything's gonna be okay. I believe in you. Maybe he was full of shit. Maybe he just put that in there. I can understand why. I don't know. I do know that I disagree with him on this point and will continue to do so until I see some, some clear indication that I am wrong. You're going to hear me repeat this. I'm trying real hard, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to see hope here. Any indication that the species is becoming, if not enlightened, at least aware of its own shortcomings. <sighs> Talked about this in the, in the first, uh, first or second segment today. It's a, it's, a, it's a part that he has in the propaganda and democracy section of this book. Toward the end, I may be doing this tomorrow for September 11th. I haven't decided yet, but he talks about being able to see things, being honest with ourselves and with other people in times of turmoil. Being able to see our own shortcomings and deal with them directly rather than deluding ourselves, sticking our head in the proverbial sand and telling ourselves that we are the evolution. We are the inevitable God of the universe. Humanism. No, we're not. Sorry, Mr. Alul, I disagree with you on that point. And again, I've said this earlier, each week, each single week, despite looking for this, despite searching for it so hard, trying to prove myself, prove to myself that my cynicism is misplaced. It's just cynicism. It's just lazy, nihilistic thinking. Crutching on the negative. Every single time I do that, every single time I go out there and say, okay, I'm going to try to look at the bright side. I don't see it. I do not see it anywhere. You need to point this out to me if you do. And you need to point it out in a way that's not self-deluded, that's not concocting shoulds or maybes or imaginary scenarios of where we could be going. I want to see your fucking work. I cannot find it for the life of me. I always end up right back where I've been from the beginning of this podcast's resurrection and beyond. Winter is here. It's the people. We are responsible for this, and until we fix us, it ain't going to get any better. It might get a whole lot worse. We may not end up surviving it, or we may end up surviving it little tiny bands like we were a 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. The superstructure of a society may break down and disintegrate with a whole lot of piled-up corpses out in the fields waiting to be burned as we recongregate back in our little communities of 150 people where we probably belong, at least in this firmware version of humanity. That's, 
the obvious course of things is I look down the road as I, as I use my imaginary abstract third eye and I look down the road. That's exactly what I see. And I cannot see any exit ramps off this road. I need someone to point these things out to me and they need to be done factually. Without happy thoughts, without religious thinking, without the idea of heaven, we're getting to heaven, we're going to go to heaven. This imaginary thinking with an imaginary happy ending simply because you need one. I don't need one. I'll reject it. But I need to be able to see this. You need to be, somebody needs to be able to show me this. It's the people. Winter is here. I've been saying this for over a year. We have met the enemy. He is us. An old cartoon. The enemy isn't them. He's not the propagandist. He's not the power structure. Not the man keeping you down. It's us. It's us. It's this fucking mind. This addiction to ego. Putting ourselves at the center of the world or in a position of victimization. Everything is victimizing me. I am not responsible for my life. I'm a victim. Fuck you. I'm entitled now. If you're thinking clearly, if you're freed from the delusion of Sausage Party hope, the need for a happy ending, the need to concoct in your own mind a happy ending, if you're freed from that, yet you still see that path forward, I want to hear about it desperately. I implore you, please tell me your story. Give me the narrative. I want to hear it. Utopian and Tragic Visions is basically an entry into human nature. That whole book's about human nature, obviously. If you're one of those folks that think that human nature is horseshit, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, for one thing. (laughs) But if you're lost, I want you to think about this. It's just possible that uh, thinking your particular tribe, therefore, by disguised projection, you, my tribe, me, your tribe, you, by thinking that your particular tribe, therefore, by disguised projection, you are the enlightened, therefore, chosen ones. That could be the single most destructive thing to social cohesion we're dealing with right now. I'm the chosen one. We're the chosen one. We're the special ones. We're the enlightened ones. Me. I'm enlightened. It could be the most destructive thing to uh, social cohesion that we're dealing with. Did you swallow your tongue right there? Is that egocentric seizure struck? I want you to think about how universal that trait really is. Think for a second about that. Everybody thinks that their group, and by extension they, are the chosen ones. I've been dealing with this for 10 years. I'm 15 years, man. Chris and I used to talk. Friar Chris and I used to talk about 2012, long before the date came. We were speculating about it. This was back at the height of our religion. Where the universe was guiding us and the universe was protecting us. The universe was our buddy and our pal. It had chosen us. It had enlightened us. It had made us aware of all these things. And we would talk about 2012. We would talk about the impending apocalypse. And I used to like to talk about it. I can show you the writing. I still kept it. It's still up. I can talk about how I thought that, oh, the world was just going to rebalance itself. Maybe that the Mayans were right, that the world was going to rebalance and cleanse itself in 2012. Maybe it wasn't a Mayan prophecy. Maybe it was a parable. Oh, maybe about climate change or imbalance or capitalism, consumerism, raping the earth. 
well, in 2012, maybe the world will just rebalance itself. It'll scrape the virus clean, and there's going to need to be somebody there to rebuild it, to lead the tribe forth. And gosh, we're the enlightened ones. It'll be us. We'll have a little compound. We talked about having a compound down in Peru or South in the Andes. I remember talking about having it in Peru. This was in 2009. <laughs> huh. Interesting, isn't it? Well, 2012 came and went. I was down in Palenque for that. Palenque, Mexico, not too far from the ruins. And I remember a lot of people there were like, okay, here it comes. Oh, yes, apocalypse. That means that means we're going to lead forth the survivors. <laughs> and in the sense, nobody would say anything about it. Nobody would actually admit it the next day. But everybody woke up after the earth was supposed to be dead and is like, oh. Shit. Oh, well, I guess I'm not going to be leading forth the surviving tribe from Palenque. Nobody said it. Nobody said it. But you, you, if, you, if you were aware and you were sort of observant, you could kind of get a vibe and a sense for things. The euphoria the night before, the anticipation of the end, being elevated upon your throne as the chosen tribe. That euphoria was gone the next morning. And then, then, then well, it's just, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an awakening of awareness. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's just, a, just rational justifying. Not being able to tell themselves. Not having to tell themselves they were wrong. <laughs> they had made a mistake. That they had put themselves at the center of their own bullshit story. And the story was proven to be bullshit this morning. They couldn't do that. No, they just had to start directing it. You see this with apocalypse, these apocalyptic uh, predictions. You see it every time. Oh, and I don't know, January 13th, there's going to be a comet and the earth's going to end. It's been ordained by God. God has spoken to me. And January 14th rolls around. Earth's still here. No comets hit. Well, you know, I didn't mean it literally. I just meant that. Da, 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 da. Shut the fuck up. <sighs> you are not the chosen one, jackass. You are not the chosen one. There are no chosen ones. It's us. It's just people. People do what people do. And that's what I think this is. That's what I think this whole, this whole notion of abandoning human nature. I think it has to do with that. And, and these, these people, these blank slatists, and, and this shit is, is so pervasive that even the blank slatists who deny human nature put themselves in that category. They, they exhibit this trait. We understand that there is no human nature. We're the chosen ones. We're the enlightened ones. How do you not see it? And beyond that, this sort of uh, we're the chosen ones stuff is encoded into every fucking religion, cult, conspiracy theory, and political ideology. Everybody wants to put themselves in the position of being the chosen enlightened ones. Everybody. Doesn't matter. You could have Forrest Gump. You could have a cult of lobotomized gumps. And they would think that they are the chosen ones. Create your own scenario. It will here. It would happen. You put these people in a group. You isolate them off. You let them talk to each other. Reinforce each other. Encourage and perpetuate the delusions, the bullshit rationalizations, elephantitis, if you will. And eventually, they're going to convince themselves that they are God's chosen people. God being a metaphor or literal, however you want to see it. They will eventually do that. It's encoded in the human DNA. 
It's our infantile ego concocting a shared, shared egocentric mythological narrative. It's a cul-de-sac inside our own little personal matrix. The narrative. The internal dialogue, the internal narrative, the internal construct explaining the world with us at the middle of it. And us, meaning you, meaning the individual by extension via the group. Propaganda and disinformation feasts upon this. Utopian tragic vision? <laughs> if there's any question, I would highly encourage you to buy a stock in the tragic variety. You're going to thank me later. I've only dabbled in this book just a little bit, okay? Uh, but I may at some point down the road a ways. I got a few other things I want to do, but I may be doing something like what I've done with propaganda with this book. I may. It depends on how the rest of the book is. Uh, but what I've read... I mentioned a little while ago that I, that I think that all roads sort of lead back to the same point. You know, it's the people. Winter is here kind of thing. But it leads to another point as well. And that is the data overload and drowning ourselves in uh, disconnected information. Detaching from this constant deluge of data, information, propaganda, and disinformation. Data disguised as culture and politics. Streaming through the internet, cable, and cellular connections. Confusing and confounding this very limited human mind. Of course you're not going to see very many people talk about it because it's probably their it's probably their meal ticket. Why would CNN tell you to shut off CNN? Why would Facebook tell you to deactivate from Facebook? Same for Twitter, Instagram, Fox News. Why would any of these people tell you that in order to see the world more clearly, in order to be able to differentiate and decipher truth from bullshit, you need to shut them off? Bad business, right? I've not seen that discussed. I've not seen that discussed very much anywhere outside of people like Nicholas Carr, Dr. Eli, and a few others. But nobody who's really made, nobody who's really, really well known. Marshall McLuhan talked about this. He was well known back in the 60s. He's a classic author. He authored uh, the media ecology field of study. He was the founding father of that in the 1960s, and this is one of his premises. The, the data overload premise has been around for a long, long time, hundreds if not thousands of years. With the advent of new technology comes more data, more uh, instantaneous access to information, more than your mind can process. You get confused when you get confused, when we get confused. We run home to mama. We look for anything simple, anything less confusing that will offer answers. To alleviate the cognitive dissonance, the confusion, the ambiguity, Anything that lets us forget how confused we really are. And the real solution may be to try engaging in the organic world. The real flesh and blood world where you can touch people. You can smell people's bad breath. You can tell if they have halitosis or not. You can look them in the eye. You can read their body language. You can interact as a human being. How we evolve to interact. Interact more organically with real data, real information, real interpersonal relationships. As opposed to getting your entire world, the entire impression of the world delivered via electronic eyes. Electronic eyes that are 99% out of 100 trying to sell you something, be it a product, be it an agenda, something. Filling your head with bullshit from all directions at a pace 
heretofore not seen. It's exponentially worse than it was even 15, 20 years ago now. I, I think back to when I was a kid, oh, when I was a young and I know, I know. But I think back to this. We just had our class reunion over the weekend. I didn't go. But I got to thinking about this, like how different things were. I didn't even have a telephone. We grew up dirt poor. But I had one TV channel, no television. I had to enter. I had to use my imagination. I had to get out in the world or drive myself nuts with boredom because I didn't have anything to distract me at that point in time. I had to go look people in the face if I wanted to talk to them. That is not the case now. There is so much more information, so much more data lambasting us from every single direction. We cannot keep this straight. We don't know what to believe most of the time. We cling to anything that will explain the world in the way we want to see it. And because these data and informational seas are so turbulent and will drown us as soon as we jump into them without the life raft or the, the, the life vest of doctrine or ideology or religion, we won't leave that boat. We cling to it because there's too much out there. The trick, I think, is going to be, and moving forward, is to be, be able to disconnect from that. Again, I go back to what I was saying earlier. Where's the indication anybody wants to do that? We don't turn progress back. Are you kidding me? That's one of the myths of Western culture, is the myth of progress. The religion of progress. Technological progress. Technology makes everything better. That's one of the founding myths of capitalism. It's one of the main pillars of Western culture. We're not going to turn that back. It just isn't going to happen. So again, I'm asking you to show your work. <laughs> I'm going to go off track here a little bit, but I, uh, I came to the conclusion, I think, maybe a week, two weeks ago, that the 20th century had its defining moments, had its defining battles, its defining wars. Right, World War I, World War II, the battle of the Cold War against you know, capitalism versus communism. I don't know that we've ever really had what this century is going to be. I don't know that it's ever made itself apparent what the theme of the 21st century is going to be. A lot of people want to point to 9-11. They want to point to the war on terrorism. I don't think that's it. I think the battle, the existential battle for survival in the 21st century is going to be informational. Being able to cling to any semblance of reality, to be able to, to decipher truth from falsehood. As the technology continues to advance, as we get inundated with more and more and more data and information, the battle of the 21st century is going to be able to stay tethered to reality, to stay organic. I'm not optimistic that we're going to be able to do that. And to go back to Walter Lippmann, I talked about this a number of times, the last couple of months, Walter Lippmann says the, uh, the culture of the society that has lost the ability to distinguish truth from falsehood does not remain free. I won't rehash everything here, but one way or another, if you can't tell the truth from bullshit, somebody's going to control you. Eventually. You know, be it through enforcing peace in times of you know, internal strife, internal conflict, two fictions fighting each other, somebody has to come in and enforce peace. That's tyranny. Like it or not, that is tyranny. Or convincing you of things like blank slateism. 
<laughs> so much more. So much more. There's a lot more stuff that I wanted to get to today, but uh, I think this podcast is uh, slowly getting <laughs> long enough. Sort of a rant fest today. Maybe. I don't know. I needed to get something in. If I didn't do this today, it's probably going to be another week, 10 days. I keep finding more material. I am going to get back to the propaganda material, the Jacques Ellul uh, book, Propaganda. The formation of men's attitudes. I found a buttload more. I may be only halfway through what I'm going to do with that book because the stuff that I've already gotten to is pretty important. But there's the propaganda and democracy stuff in here. Creepy. I need to get to that, but uh, maybe next week we'll get back at that. We'll see. ChristopherMedia.net for all your podcast needs. Go check out Chris's website. You can also hit up my website, my beautiful and lovely website at uh, escapeofthecave.com. I forgot to get to the uh, bleaching today, didn't I? Didn't have time. Hmm. Good story there. <laughs> An interesting couple of weeks. I'll get to that in the next episode. So, Hey, thanks for clicking in. Happy September 11th. And uh, look for another episode soon. We'll talk to you then. So long. Mm-hmm.